invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Book of Revelation chapter 19. We've come, uh, you're going to find as we, as we enter the final chapters here of the book of Revelation, we're coming to the end of the history of the world. Uh, and the scene that we have in this morning is uh, a scene of the rejoicing in heaven as uh, God has um, brought his judgment on all that is evil and on the devil and uh, the beast. And, um, and the saints in heaven are rejoicing. That's the picture we have this morning here in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Revelation 19. Remember, these are visions. John has seen these in, in uh, symbolic form, the realities of glory. But after this, John write, writes, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. <clears throat> well, God in heaven, we now come. Um, we thank you that you've given us your word, and we thank you that you've given us your spirit, that we might understand the things of God. Uh, we are hungry. Feed us and uh, Lord, it's all of grace, and so we thank you for that. Uh, we, we want to hear and be taught and trained and transformed by the power of God and for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't have an outline for you this morning because I really only have two points, and I thought you could probably re, um, uh, do just fine uh, remembering them. Uh, and, and really, it's just one story. We're going to be looking at the worship of the saints uh, we're going to see their, the, the cause for their rejoicing and then the occasion. And those are my, those are my two points. Uh, George Frederick Handel, as you know, uh, wrote the classic masterpiece, The Messiah, in 1741. Uh, he was on the brink of bankruptcy and, uh, and yet was, was inspired. He was asked to write this, but just found the, the goodness of uh, this story to be overwhelming as he uh, writes a, just a magnificent piece on the story of redemption. The most um, 
famous portion, of course, is the Hallelujah Chorus, and that is based, at least in part, on Revelation 19, verse 6, as it reads in the King James Version, version Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And, um, and you've sung that or heard that many times. Uh, scholars say that uh, Handel composed the, the Messiah without getting much sleep or, or even eating uh, much food. Uh, when his assistants brought him meals, they were often left uneaten. Uh, his, uh, they would often find him in tears as he composed. When he completed the Alleluia Chorus, he told his servants, I did think I saw all heaven before me and the great God himself seated on his throne with his company of angels. And that's the sense that we should have this morning uh, as we come to Revelation 19, that Jesus is opening the veil again so that we can see into heaven itself and the worship that's taking place there. Uh, The reverberating thunderous anthems of the saints and angels in heaven are summarized in this text uh, four different times. You have the word hallelujah. It's the only time you have the word in the whole New Testament. And four times it shows up here in the book of uh, in chapter 19 of Revelation. The the song of heaven is praise the Lord. That's the song of heaven. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, just to quickly set this text in its context to catch us up again, uh, for the past 13 chapters, ever since chapter 6, uh, Jesus has been showing us the sovereign purposes of God being carried out in the world right now, as God is at work to save his people and God is at work to judge his enemies. And Jesus has shown us the spiritual principalities and powers that are at work. Behind the headlines, right? We, we read the headlines and we hear of national, uh, natural disasters and, and great tragedies and, and awful crimes. We read the headlines, but Jesus is showing us the story behind the story. Uh, you could even say Jesus is showing us the story behind the story behind the story because he not only um, tells us the principalities and powers that are at work behind the headlines, but Jesus tells us the grand purpose of God behind the principalities and powers. That God is at work in all things to accomplish His saving purposes for His people and to uh, bring judgment on the devil and all that belong to Him and to bring everything into uh, its final glory, a new heaven and a new earth. That's what God's about. And so now as we approach the end of the book, the, uh, the stories, the visions are going to be increasingly about the end of time. Uh, Jesus wants us to know how the story will end. And it will end, we're told here, with a wedding. And we're going to see that again in the, in the coming chapters. Um, those who belong to the world will find the end of the world, the end of everything. But those who belong to Christ we'll find that the end of this world is the beginning of everything we hoped for. That uh, the end of all things is the beginning of all blessedness. The, The angel specifically says to John, write this, make sure you get this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is no blessing in all the universe, in all time, more um, blessed than this one. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who belong to Christ as his bride. 
You might have noticed that then chapter 19 feels and sounds very different than the chapters before, particularly 17 and 18. There we uh, were told of the God's judgment on the harlot, the great prostitute who defiled the earth with her immorality, who, um, and, you, and as she is judged, the world laments and mourns and wails in grief for all that they've lost. And loss is the great theme of uh, of those chapters, as we have that resounding, repeating, nevermore, nevermore, nevermore. All the things that make up life in this world, political parties and family affairs and economic activity and arts and crafts and sports and eating and drinking, all of that comes to a um, definitive and eternal end when Jesus returns. For this age, for this world, nevermore is the sentence of God over all those things for those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. And so you have all the mourning, all the lamenting for all that's lost, but now in chapter 19, in stark contrast, we have the song of the saints. And uh, it is in contrast to the lament for loss, it is an ecstatic, thunderous anthem of praise of thanks and worship and glory to God and to the Lamb. So if never again is the theme of the songs of hell, hallelujah is the theme of the songs of heaven. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so as I said, let's first then just look at the cause in verse 19. Why are the saints singing? Why are the angels of heaven singing hallelujah? Well, we're first told that they're singing this uh, because of the judgments of God. Verses 1 and 2, I heard what's, what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now, there might be something within you that shrinks back a little bit, and, and you wonder, is it okay for God's people to rejoice over God's judgments? Is it okay to rejoice when, when the smoke of Babylon, the great city, goes up forever and ever? Well, um, we might think it would be more Christian uh, to weep over the world and to weep over the judgment of this world. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it be more Christian to act like Jesus did as Jesus wept over Jerusalem? It's a fair question. And it is certainly Christ-like to grieve over a lost world. Um, Paul the Apostle wept over the unbelief, the stubborn unbelief of Israel, of the Jews in his day. He, he mourned their unbelief, their, their refusal to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, he, he grieved when he was in Athens and he saw all the, all the idol worship to all these gods and yet they don't know the true and living God. And we as God's children today, we should feel the weight of people all around us who are living just their short little life in this world with no sense of what is to come. No sense of their obligation to worship the God who created them. No sense of the glory that that awaits those who come to to know Jesus Christ. No sense of the terror of of being uh, cast into hell, the judgment of God that awaits everyone who does not know and love Christ. 
We should feel the weight of that. But, but that grieving is a gospel grieving for the gospel age. There will be no mourning or grieving in the new heaven and the new earth. Not even for the lost world. Remember the Jesus who wept over Jerusalem is the same Jesus who judged Jerusalem. The same Jesus who died so that sinners could be saved is the same Jesus who at the end of time when the gospel age is completed and the elect have been gathered in, it's the same Jesus then who will, we're going to read in the following verses of chapter 19, come as a great warrior, king of kings and lord of lords, and judge the nations. And so the, that grief is appropriate now, but it's, it's, in some way it's not going to be appropriate in the new heaven and earth. And one of the things that will, will help us with that is to realize that when we get to heaven, we're going to see things correctly uh, as, as, uh, they, as they are, or, or we'll see things the way that the saints and angels here in Revelation 19 see them. In the world that we live in today, if, you, if I would ask you, what's, what's the most valuable thing in the world today, you would say, uh, people, my, 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 my family. Uh, when, when I was a, a young uh, teenager, our, our house burned down, and we stood there out in the, in the, in the farmyard watching it collapse uh, with all of our stuff in it, and, and we just congratulated each other, right, celebrated Everyone's out. Everyone's safe. People matter, and they do matter. But, but in heaven, um, you will immediately recognize that there is something that matters more than people. That the glory of God is the ultimate value, and that, and that everything that offends or violates or rejects, ignores the glory of God is actually the essence of evil and must be judged. See, I, I'm convinced that when we, when we finally stand in the presence of Jesus face to face and in, 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 in the presence of God the Father, we will say over and over, I had no idea. I had, I had no idea. I had no idea that God was, was this glorious and, and this good, never, never comprehended. We're promised that'll be true. You see, God and the glory of God is the ultimate value of the universe. The, the primary obligation that drove Jesus to the cross was not fundamentally the value of the human soul, but the value of the glory of God. That's why he prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name. You see, the deepest necessity is that the Father be worshipped and, and that the Father's saving purposes be fulfilled. And so the primary purpose of the cross was to magnify the glory of the justice and mercy and love and truth and grace of Almighty God. That was the ultimate purpose. The primary accomplishment of the cross was God's victory over his enemies, over sin and death, the devil and hell, and, and the accomplishment of God's purpose to, to save for himself his people. To his, the praise of his glorious grace. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. 
And so we, the sinners saved by grace, we are the delirious trophies of his victory. We're the recipients as we are called into the glory of God. We sang the song, um, a monument to mercy. That's what we are. So when the angels say, um, tell me, what is the mercy of God like? Right? We, we, can, we can tell the story in a way that they couldn't know. We're the sinner saved by grace. We're the monuments to mercy. And so you see, if the primary purpose and accomplishment and obligation of the cross was the glory, the value of the glory of God, then that means that mission exists to the same end. That that gospel mission in the world does not exist primarily because human souls are so valuable, but primarily because God is so eternally glorious and so deserving of the worship of his creatures. There is a thunderous oughtness to the worship of God. And I know that strikes sideways at the way that we think and feel in our in our culture. It feels like people should matter more than anything. Well, people matter more than anything under, right, under the sun, made in the image of God, uh, immortal souls that will live forever, even in the the bliss of heaven or the horror of hell. People are are vastly more significant. That's why it's so desperately sad when we when we live in a throwaway culture where where little babies and 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 people who are maybe not seen as helpful or useful are just cast aside. But you see, that matters fundamentally because the glory of God is being lied about and sinned against. And so if if you're a child of God, one of the deepest spirit-wrought passions in your heart will be that God gets the glory he deserves. There is a um, story of Henry Martin. He was a missionary to Persia and uh, and India as well in the early 1800s. And and, uh, he once saw a drawing of Jesus bowing down to the prophet Muhammad. And he began to weep. And his servant came to him and, and said, you know, uh, well, master, what's wrong? Uh, too much, uh, you've just been working too hard, overcome by exhaustion. And, and his res- this is what he said in response. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. Hell for Martin was Jesus not being glorified. How about us? See, do we have that passion for the glory of Jesus, the glory of God? So that, you see, anything that glorifies God is good and just and true and deserves celebration. Anything. If you're still shrinking back, Derek Thomas makes the great point that it might help to realize that you've been praying for, Psalm, for Revelation 19 every time you pray the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught us, remember? And if you, if you remember the first two petitions, hallowed be thy name, glory be given to you, our Father in heaven, and your kingdom come and your will be done. Do you know what that means? That means that you would judge your enemies, that you would destroy the devil's kingdom, 
Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question answer 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. The Heidelberg Catechism is a little more explicit. Uh, What does the second request mean? Uh, It means destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. That's the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Revelation 19 is the answer. That's what the saints are celebrating, answers to prayer. That God is being glorified as he ought to be. The devil has been condemned and judged, and every force opposed to the glory of God has been sentenced to everlasting condemnation, as it ought to be. And so this song is all about the victory of God and the glory of God. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Can you just hear that thunderous, thunderous anthem? Every voice in unison. God is the saving God. God is the glorious God. He is the mighty God. And the delirious satisfaction and celebration of those truths in heaven, what God is like, and his judgments are true and just. We talked about that. His judgments are true and that they are in perfect accord with the, with the sinful actions of men, and they are just, they are in perfect accord with the holy character of God. And the evidence, he has judged the great prostitute and avenged on her the blood of his servants. What would we think of a father who watched his children being beaten brutally by a stranger in the front yard and then sighed and turned around and went back and grabbed a beer and sat down to watch TV? You would think, uh, that, man, that man is a wretch of a man. Um, the saints of heaven rejoice because God has avenged the blood of his children. The prostitute, remember, the spirit of this age was drunk on the blood of the saints. She had delighted in putting to death God's children. She had had, um, waged war with the bride, Jesus' bride. What husband worth his salt would do nothing as his bride is assaulted? Jesus is the just king of heaven. Our father is a just heavenly father. And the celebration of the saints is that God has acted. His judgments are true and just. You see, everything wrong here has been made right to the glory of God. And the joy of the saints is that it will forever be that way. So verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of um, many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. He's just saying, I'm trying to describe, it's like, it's like, it's like. And, and the picture you get is just this, this incredible, resounding anthem of praise. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And the, and, and the, the tense of that reigns means it's, it's a reign that is full and complete and forever. Friends, this is the world as it should be. The devil and all of his hosts destroyed Jesus, the Son of God, reigning in all glory with all power and all dominion to the glory of God the Father forever. And to see that, that's glory. Glory, the glory of heaven will not just be your personal experience of you don't hurt anymore. Uh, or, or, or even the, the, the joy of being perfected. I, I can't even imagine the joys of that. But, but that's not the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven is God. 
the glory of heaven is seen that everything is now according to the purpose of God and, and for the glory of God, and that's exactly what your soul most deeply hungers to see. And nothing, nothing then, you see, is allowed to come in the way of that. John, John uh, this, this godly old man, this apostle, friend of Jesus, right, uh, is rebuked by an angel because when John hears this message and senses the glory of it, he falls down at the feet of the angel to worship him, and he gets rebuked. Don't do that. It's very sharp. Don't you dare do that. Why? Because I'm just a servant like you. Worship God. God alone is worthy of worship. And when you know the glory of God, anything that denigrates from the worship of that God, even a godly old apostle kneeling before an angel, is offensive. God alone, God alone, God alone is worthy of our worship. And that will be the experience of heaven. And then secondly, finally, we see the occasion. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. That's exactly the point. Rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Friends, human history begins and ends with a wedding. At the beginning of time, God made a man. And then he opened that man's side and formed from the rib a woman to be his lover and companion and his helper. And together they are invited to, do, to explore and delight in the glories of God's new creation and reign over it. It was beautiful. It was very good. And in the end, we read of another wedding. And once again, we see a beautiful bride. And once again, she's been created from the pierced side of the man from the wound that Jesus suffered on the cross. And as a bride now prepared for him, she's given to him to delight in all the glories of a new heaven and a new earth and to reign with him forever. And it is very, very good. In the book of Genesis, we see that Eve was presented to Adam without spot and with great joy. And that's exactly how the bride is presented here as well. She's no shame. She's clothed. She's clean. She's pure. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Fine linen in the Old Testament uh, is, the, is the clothing of priests, those who have been sanctified to the service of God, those who are allowed access into the presence of God, and that's exactly what we have here. And friend, the burning question of your life has got to be this, how do I get that clothing? Because you will not enter into the marriage feast of the Lamb without it. No one will. How do you get this fine linen, bright and pure? How do you get that clothing? The answer is twofold. One, it's a gift. It was granted to her. You cannot buy these clothes. They don't have them on Amazon. The only way to get these clothes is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. As you confess your sin... You confess your impurity, and you cast yourself on what Jesus accomplished on the cross for sinners and for you, and you believe that that sacrifice is sufficient to wash away your stain and to robe you in the righteousness of Jesus as you receive it as a gift, pure gift, by grace through faith. And the wonderful promise of the gospel is everyone who comes to Jesus in that way will be saved and clothed. 
with a righteousness that is not our own. Praise God. And yet, the text also says that that miracle will be worked out. That gift will have evidences. So the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. If you've been granted the clothing of righteousness, you will pursue righteousness. You can't help it. You you simply won't be able to stay in your sin. You will hunger for righteousness. And so there will be evidence. Yesterday afternoon, Joanne and I were uh, taking a kind of a slow drive through downtown Philadelphia on our way back to the airport. And we passed a fancy hotel. Their doormen were standing there in their nice outfits. And uh, men and women were walking up just immaculately dressed. Beautiful tuxedos, um, wonderful uh, dresses. Um, it was, it, we, we surmised a wedding was taking place. A very, very expensive wedding. And uh, the invitation, you see, granted them, um, invited them to come to the banquet. But the clothing was the evidence that they understood the significance of the event and had made themselves ready. They had prepared themselves. The invitation of the gospel goes to all. If you call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And it's absolutely true. And if you are saved, you will understand the significance of the event. And you will hear your bridegroom say, make yourself ready. Make yourself ready. And that's not by, again, that's being worked out. That's the grace of God bearing fruit. That's not you now uh, doing something apart from the power of God and God alone. It's just the evidence of, of what happened when God worked that miracle of regeneration in your life. Well, Jesus wants the bride to come then prepared. Take the gift of his righteousness and lovingly pursue righteousness. And to that end, the angel gives us this beautiful benediction. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When I saw those people in their beautiful clothing (laughs) enter into that fancy hotel uh, with the doorman holding the door open, I, I I felt a pang of desire. I sort of wanted to say, honey, let's just park and go in, right? I could imagine what their evening was going to look like. A beautiful flower-filled banquet hall with with golden light from the massive chandeliers sort of just drifting down and mingling in with the chords of the orchestra, maybe over in the corner, playing maybe strings, maybe maybe a little soft jazz, and there would be these beautiful waiters, nicely clothed with big trays, and they're full of of goblets of, of really expensive Cabernet or maybe Chardonnay, and you can just help yourself. And, and there's, there's, there's appetizers that are so good, they, they barely have names for them. And then the, 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 there's tables just loaded with food everywhere, and it's all yours. And, and you get to be there and soak in the ambience and soak in the splendor of it with all these beautiful people who are smiling and dancing and talking, celebrating. That sounds like a really good night. I hope there's something within you that hungers for that. Because if you're a Christian, there should be. It's what you were made for. It's what you're made for. You're made for a holy wedding. You're made for glory. You're made for honor. You're made for splendor. You're made for a heavenly banquet feast that will make the most sumptuous banquets of this world seem like a very, very, very bad day at McDonald's. It's, it's, it's going to be awful. You'll say, do you remember when we did that awful event over at so-and-so's? 
compared to this? And we'll shake our heads and laugh and celebrate. Let me just read again as we wrap up. The wedding feast that God promises in Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray together. But God in heaven, you lay before us glorious things. Things that are eternal. Things that are saturated with the glory of God. Things, Lord, that are so magnificent and beautiful, it's hard for us to imagine them. And yet, this is what you have promised us in Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that promise is before us this morning in a table in bread and wine as you invite us today to feast by faith at the banquet table of heaven with eager anticipation of the day when faith will give way to sight. And Lord, I pray then that we would gather your people, your bride, confessing our sin, rejoicing in your salvation. And that we, Lord, today would hear you convince us again, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, this morning for those who do not know if they've been invited, who do not have the, the Spirit bearing witness to their heart that this is true, I just pray that you'd give the, give the ability, Lord, to call on the name of the Lord today and to find that the invitation is true for them as well that Jesus is the Savior of sinners and delights to make those who've made shipwreck of their life into his glorious bride. So all the praise and all the glory goes to him. Amen. I'd like to invite